Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew Gomison, and I am your host. I am so grateful that you have taken the time to listen today, and I hope that that it will be an encouragement to you on this journey that we call the Christian life. I am so excited about today's show as we continue our Back to Basics series, and we continue to cycle through some myths that are overtaking the modern church, or at least modern preachers and others who claim to speak for God. And this myth is something that is so important that we talk about uh, because it addresses the idea that we can not prioritize Scripture when we teach about God and living a good life. Can we live a good life apart from Scripture? And what does the Bible say about what a real good life is? The reason for this series is because we are lacking in our society a fixed moral standard. When this nation was founded, it was founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic that God should be over all. Benjamin Franklin said at the founding of the country, I know this to be true, that God governs in the affairs of men. And we've made mistakes along the way. America is not perfect because it's made of imperfect people. But part of the success of America to this point is the fact that we have a fixed moral standard. And that really is the key to success in all of Scripture. If you want to live a successful Christian life, you have to have a fixed moral standard. And so we'll we'll dig into this a little bit more as we go on and talk about can you really teach people to live a good life apart from God? I contend that you cannot, and we will dig into that, as I said, in just a few moments. But first, let's talk about what is going on. First of all, I want to thank you so much for praying for me as I returned to Potter's House High School. It's hard to believe that even though we are just catapulting into September this week, we have already been in school for almost two weeks. God has really blessed, and I feel like I'm getting into a rhythm or a routine. You know, it's funny I say that, and you never know when there could be some sort of monkey wrench thrown in. But God is faithful, and I'm excited, and I'm feeling more comfortable as I get to know each of my students, and hopefully I am giving them encouragement and a great environment to study and to better themselves, both academically and as they see my example in walking with Christ. So there's just a couple things I'd like to talk to you about today. The first one is some exciting news out of Texas. The new Texas law banning abortion as early as six weeks into pregnancy. The Supreme Court did not take any action on the law, which is now the strictest abortion law in the nation. The law's opponents say six weeks is before many women even know they're pregnant. Skylar Henry has more from Washington, D.C. It's essential! It's essential! It's essential! It's essential! 
Protesters gathered in Texas after the U.S. Supreme Court failed to block the state's controversial abortion law from taking effect at midnight. The measure bans abortions as early as six weeks into pregnancy, which is before many women even know they're pregnant. This bill represents uh, tens of thousands of lives saved per year here in Texas. At this moment, Texas is a constitution-free zone as far as abortion is concerned. Law professor Elizabeth Sepper of the University of Texas at Austin says the most unusual aspect of the bill is a provision that allows citizens to sue anyone who assists a woman in getting an abortion after six weeks. Those who are successful with their lawsuits could be awarded a minimum of $10,000. We're talking about essentially empowering people to act as bounty hunters against abortion providers or family and friends of people who receive abortions. According to the Guttmacher Institute, state legislatures set a record in 2021 for the most abortion restrictions signed in one year since the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. What do you think this says for other states who may try to follow suit? I think it would be foolish for other state legislatures to adopt uh, a law like Texas has done. And that's because the legal fight is not even close to over. The Supreme Court could still weigh in on the Texas law. Meanwhile, the landmark Roe versus Wade decision will face another test this fall, when the high court hears arguments on a Mississippi bill that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So this bill from Texas just became law this week, September 1st, after being signed in mid-May. And I just want to make a couple comments here. First of all, I applaud the legislature and the governor of Texas for prioritizing this. The second thing I want to say is you heard in this piece a an argument from the pro-choice side that the Constitution is null and void in Texas because this bill uh, sets women back 50 years I'm not sure if she said it in this piece, but that's kind of the attitude that, that, that this kind of bill sets women's rights back 50 years. And, you know, Joe Biden, of course, they said he chimed in and said that this undermines the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade. But let's unpack that a little bit here. First of all, there are three main ways in American society where the laws become law. The number one way is through the legislature. The legislature crafts bills. They then vote on the bills. If there's a two-part legislature, House and the Senate, they have to agree on a bill. And then it goes either to the governor or to the president, respectively, for his signature or veto. That is the legislative process. The second way that something may become law is through petitions to place things on state and local ballots where if a measure is voted on by the people, it will become law. There was actually a law in 1972 that was voted on to make Michigan one of the most pro-life states just months before Roe versus Wade came down. And as we've discussed previously on this podcast, the companion the companion decisions of the Supreme Court, Doe versus Bolton and Roe versus Wade, combined to essentially make abortion available at any time for any reason throughout all nine months of pregnancy, especially as even though the age of viability is mentioned 
It's not defined. So this is what we're talking about. And the third way that a law can become a law in our great country is through constitutional amendments. We have several of them. And when the majority of states decide that something needs to be changed about our constitution, they can amend that constitution. The Roe versus Wade decision did not fit any one of those three criteria. Think about that for a second. Nine Supreme Court justices, if we are to believe that this is a constitutionally sound law, nine Supreme Court justices have the power to override the will of the people in all 50 states. There's something wrong there. Even if you fully believe in abortion rights, there's something wrong there. Even the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, that is not good law. Even President Biden expressed his desire to see this be codified into the law of the land because he realized, and he actually opened himself up to that when he said that, he realized that he was actually going against the prevailing narrative of Roe versus Wade, which is, which is it is good law and it's sufficient. By saying that he wanted to codify it, by saying that he wanted to bolster the law, he was in effect saying it's not good law. My brother and I were talking the other day and he pointed out something fairly interesting. Often when we talk about the decadence of society, and we think about Europe, for instance, we will go through any number of issues, morally speaking, and we will say that, we. it's often said that uh, Europe is about a generation ahead of us on the decadence scale. That's a generalization, but that, that's something that is often thought of. And yet on this issue of abortion, they, in many places in Europe, have far more restrictive laws than do we. A human life is not determined by the baby's location. A human life is not determined by the circumstances of the conception. A human life is determined by the fact that God created man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. If you look through the creation account of all the living things, you will find that that is the only part of creation where God does this. That sets mankind above every other part of creation. So I will stand for any law that preserves the dignity of our most defenseless. So, as we move on to the next story that I want to share with you today, it deals with the resegregation of schools. And this story, you know, I don't know what to say. 
because if I didn't know these things were happening, I would not believe this story. You know, it, it used to be even, you know, two or three years ago that you look at a story and it would seem really outlandish. So you would say, well, that's just satire and it's very clearly satire. And, you know, you know how to separate satire from fact and, and reason prevails to a certain extent. But over the last year and a half, maybe even a little longer, there have been an increasing number of quote-unquote satire stories that are in fact real life. And this story comes out of Atlanta. Here now, exclusively on Fox News Primetime, Kyla Posey and her attorney, Sharice Shields. Kyla, I got to ask you this. Your child comes home, you found out this is happening, and you go into the school. What happens next? Um, It was actually at the end of the school year. Mm -hmm. Um, She contacted me for the placement for the upcoming school year um, to just check to see what we wanted. And I informed her of the teacher that was the best fit for my student. And um, that's when she informed me that if I placed her in that classroom, that she would be um, by herself with um, no others that looked like her. And when I questioned it, she told me that that was not the black class. Um, I was then confused, um, appalled that in 2020 we're talking about black classes and segregation. Wow. And when you followed up with the school district, did they say this was going to be done, done away with or did they continue to try to place her in that classroom? Um, they did not place her in that classroom, um, but they and they did tell us it was months later by the time they had investigated and gone through the process and confirmed that the principal um, had, in fact, had this practice going on. So after that, they told us that they were, um, that was not a practice of the district, um, a policy of the district, and they condoned it and that she would not be allowed to do that anymore. Kyla, is it your daughter still at that school? She is. And, and is that teacher still there as well? Um, the principal is still there. The principal, She's the I'm person sorry. that, uh huh, she is still there. Sharice, I want to go to you because you are filing um, a suit a complaint with the state. Where does that stand right now and what do you hope to accomplish? Well, we filed a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Education, so it's the federal government. Uh, And we're seeking to have the practice ended, not just at Mary Lynn, but to the extent that other schools are doing that and within the Atlanta public school system, uh, we want those practices ended. It's a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Section 6, to treat one race of students differently than another uh, uh, group of students, race of students. Uh, And so we are asking for the practice to cease. We are also asking for the leadership team at that school to be removed uh, because they were well aware that this was a practice. They condoned it. They uh, it seemed to support the principal in her decision to designate these black classes. And so they need to be removed. So you, we have in this, in this uh, story out of Atlanta, we are once again repeating segregation. 
Now, I could say a lot on this. The first thing I will say is that Martin Luther King Jr. said that he wanted a, he envisioned an America where his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that has been the fight. That was the crux of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that everyone is equal, remember? The Declaration of Independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the equality of mankind is the basis upon which America was founded. And obviously we had certain things like slavery and the way that we treated the American Indians that was anything but equal, and we those are black stains on our country. So why would anyone in their right mind want to go back to an era of segregation in America? That is completely unbelievable to me. And as I said a year ago, I would have said right out the gate, this is satire, it's not really happening. But you heard on that interview where this mother is fighting for her daughter to be in a desegregated class. And we are dealing with schools where this is an acceptable thing. Where separating people on the basis of race is supposedly beneficial and helpful. Now I can't relate on the race thing. But I have my own story that I'd like to share about discrimination in school. This is a story that has stayed with me for years. I'm 42 now. The absolute oldest that I was when this occurred was six. I was five or six. Probably a combination of the two. Because I was in public school at Kenoshe Park Elementary for kindergarten and first grade. And then when they undermined my potential, my parents pulled me out and homeschooled me, and the rest is history, and I'm grateful. But this particular story that I'm about to relate to you deals with the cafeteria. Do you realize that in the two or three years that I was at Kenoshe Park, I only remember going into the cafeteria once? And that was for a special Thanksgiving dinner. All the other days I can remember, it was just me and one other kid in my classroom for lunch. So even in what was a special education school, I was discriminated against in the fact that I couldn't eat lunch with the majority of my classmates. Race was not a factor here. I'm not sure why they decided to do that. All I know 
is that discrimination stinks. And I cannot believe story after story after story where we're hearing that it, that it is not only happening, but it's the happening thing. It's somehow the proper thing. We've lost our moorings. We've lost our compass. We've lost our direction. You know, a lot of times people say, well, well, America isn't that great because certain people have these challenges and other people have these challenges. That's true. But remember what I said earlier. the unalienable rights that we discussed. It talked about the pursuit of happiness, not the guarantee. And I think that's something that we need to realize that when you come to America or when you live in America, the premise is if I work hard, I can accomplish things. My life hasn't turned out the way that I hoped it would. My job situation hasn't become what I hoped it would, but I'm still blessed. I'm still grateful to be in America, and I still know there's no other place that I would want to be. I live 45 minutes from a place where I can get my wheelchair repaired. And about the same from a place where I can get a new wheelchair. There are people that I know of that come from the UP hours and hours to get new wheelchairs or to get new minivans that are accessible because there isn't a place where they live to get that done. And so I'm grateful to live in this place. And it scares me when people talk about wanting the government to control things like healthcare. Why? Because on the surface you say, well, healthcare, free healthcare will mean that I will be cared for and I won't have to pay for it. But we're already seeing this reverse discrimination where black people are given priority. And not only that, regardless of race, if somebody is not deemed worthy to live, if the government's the one treating them, they can decide that. And do you really want them to? This is what we have to contend with, people. Discrimination is real, and we should not, under any circumstances, put up with it. Today we are discussing whether you can teach someone how to have a good life apart from Scripture. Now, as I've said on a previous episode, there are certain things where goodness can show through. There are many kind people. 
that don't know the Lord. So I don't think it's impossible to be kind or to be good in the way humans understand it without the Lord. However, we have to think about how we are measuring true goodness. Case in point, a co-worker of mine brought up the fact that some of these European nations like Sweden always come out on top of these happiness polls for the happiest country to live in. But my contention is that you have to think about what does happiness mean to them? Because, well, that is true, that there are polls saying it's the happiest place to live, It's also true that countries like that have euthanasia, which is the involuntary killing of people that are deemed useless to society. And what is the start of euthanasia? Assisted suicide. That's why I was so proud to be part of a team that made sure that that was voted down in Michigan in 1998, shortly after I came on board with the Right to Life of Michigan. So as we dig into our uh, topic of the day, our main topic of the day, I wanted to start out with a quote. And this quote comes from John Piper. And John Piper says... Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. That's from John Piper's book, Don't waste your life. So what does the Bible say about living a good life? The first thing I want to point out is that a good life is an abundant life. John 10, 9 and 10 says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal to kill and to destroy, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So listen to this. John 10 says he wants us to have an abundant life. John 9 says how we get that abundant life. He says, I am the door. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So, he's not saying there's many options. He's not saying you can just live a good life. He's not saying everybody can have abundant life. But he's saying if you go through the door, then you can have abundant life in me. This is so important. Because it doesn't apply to other faiths. It doesn't apply across the board. It applies if you've applied the blood to your life. And 
in this in this modern coexist approach to faith, I don't understand why there are professing Christians with that mindset. Because the very premise of Christianity is a premise of exclusivity. Think about it. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus said, if you seek me, you will find me. He's always speaking in the definitive article. He said, he who finds me has life. He who believes in me is passed from death to life. All of these declarations that Jesus made point to the fact that he is the only way to God. So if we are believing what we profess as Christians, then we cannot go forth with this attitude that anyone can be taught to live a good life. Because the key to an abundant life is realizing that Jesus is the door. So the first thing that we talked about is a good life is an abundant life. The next thing is a good life is a content life. You ever look at society and realize that the world's motto is what can I get next? You know... Over the last year, we've seen the legalization of sports betting in Michigan. And so there's been a plethora of casinos that come up with their ads. And one popular one uses the phrase, you know, sign up for our service and make it rain, meaning make sure that you get in on on having a lot of money through betting with our service. I, I've talked with uh, someone who is a friend of mine who has gambled on occasion uh, at a casino, and she said one of the things they do is they tend to let you win early so that you think that you are going to win a lot of money, and then they sucker you in and the winning stops. Because the only way for them to make money is if people lose. So, it's important for us to be content. And what does the Bible say about that? Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, or forsake thee. 
it's kind of interesting that this is the front part of a very famous verse. And what I mean by that is we often quote, he said, I will never leave you, leave thee nor forsake thee. Um, and the contrast that the writer is making is that often we grow covetous. We want more than what we have. But the writer here is saying that God is enough. Whatever is happening in your life, God is enough. And he will sustain you in a way that great riches will not. The third point today that I want to bring out to you is a good life is a joyful life. Psalm 1611 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Once again, let's break down this verse. The path of life is through Jesus. In his presence is the fullness of joy. Now, let me be clear. Joy is not happiness. Happiness can be the result of joy, but joy can exist outside of happiness. I've experienced this in my life. I don't wake up every day extremely happy to be in a wheelchair. I don't get excited about my brother having put me in my shower chair and bathe me every morning and I don't get excited about having to be in a wheelchair and sometimes having to find out that I can't get into a place because it's not handicapped accessible or maybe there's just not good parking. I don't get excited about those things. But I do have joy because I know that God had a purpose for making me the way that I am. So I can have joy in that. We as believers do not, uh, you know, get jubilant and rejoice in the sense of being so full of laughter that we can't hold it in when we have a loved one die. We still said, we still shed tears. But we have joy because we know that we will see our believing loved ones again. That is the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. Happiness is. And so a good life is a joyful life that will show me the path of life. In thy presence is a fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I think like so much of the Bible, this verse is much more concerned with eternal life than it is with the present life. Now, as we read earlier, Jesus said he wants us to live an abundant life. And I don't think that we need to wait until heaven to live an abundant life. I think we can live an abundant life now. But I think our focus needs to be that this isn't all there is. The proverb, the writer of the proverb said it this way, Surely there is a hereafter, and your expectation 
shall not be cut off. Jesus promised he was coming again, and that should fill us with a great joy and great hope. As we continue through this list, I just hope that you realize that God wants us to have a good life, but there are conditions that need to be present for a good life. We need to go through the door. We need to rest in Him. We need to realize that with Him are pleasures forevermore. That eternity is going to have pleasures that we don't know anything about yet, but they're going to be great. And with that in mind, a good life is a life with an eye on the future. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 I believe that Paul had a genuine experience where he died and God sent him back to earth said Paul I have more to do with you but unlike some of the modern stories where it seems like they are all about writing books and putting out movies Paul said the things that I've seen I can't talk about I I don't have a right to talk about them Um, they're too overwhelming for me Whatever the total reason was, Paul said, I can't talk about them. And you would think that someone as quote-unquote worthy as Paul, someone as godly as Paul, someone as dedicated to the gospel as Paul, if anybody could write a best-selling book about their experience, it should be him. But he said, I can't talk about it. It's too wonderful for me to comprehend. And to me, that tells me that we are not to know those things now, but they will be revealed to us in time. And, you know, we've seen some pretty amazing things. I, I've been to Arizona and seen the Grand Canyon. I still, to this day, don't think I've ever said wow as many times as I did when I was there. And yet, whatever God has for us in the future, in the new heavens, in the new earth, will make the Grand Canyon pale in its grandeur. And that's a pretty exciting thing. So yes, I do believe that God wants us to live a good life. But I think we have to be very careful about the way we define our terms. And the final point that I want to talk about today is a good life is Christ living in us. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 When you preach a gospel that says it doesn't matter if you are a believer, you can still live a good life. You are, as Paul said, professing godliness, but denying the power thereof. Where did Paul's power come from? Paul's power came from the fact that he was crucified with Christ. That he knew no longer lived the life that he lived before Christ. That it wasn't about Paul, but that it was about Jesus. So, living a good life is about dying to self and allowing Christ to work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So yes, is a good life possible? It is. Is it possible apart from scripture? No. Jesus died because without him we were without strength. So if we are telling people that they can live a good life apart from Christ, we are doing them a grave disservice. And we are, in fact, putting them on the fast lane to hell. That's just the facts, folks. And it grieves me to no end that there are people who claim to know the Lord who are telling us that the way to love others is to just accept their beliefs no matter how false they are when in reality we need to let them know the truth in love. And yes, people will reject us for that. Because the truth sounds like hate to people that hate the truth. So please know, if you are listening and struggling with this, I love you. That is why I'm sharing these truths, because I love you. I want you to come into the kingdom. I want you to get to know the good shepherd. But John chapter 10, the chapter that we referred to earlier, talks about thieves climbing over the fence or people trying to get into the sheepfold another way. How unsuccessful they ultimately will be. I want you to live a successful Christian life. I want you to live a good life. But in order to do that, we need to change up our terms. Because a good life does not necessarily mean a full wallet and the nicest car in the driveway or even the nicest house to live in. A good life is living in accordance with the principles of God, even though Paul said, 
all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the question we all need to ask is, are we willing to take up the cross and follow him? The cross is not a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to the redeemed because we know what it represents. But the cross was rough-hewn wood that blood spilled off of. It was very ugly, very unattractive, and yet it was needed for your redemption and for mine. Well, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. I hope that you realize that you can have a good life, but you must choose Christ in order to experience that good life. And it's not going to be good necessarily in the way the world counts goodness. But it will be good because God will change your desires and then he will give you the desires of your heart. And there's no greater blessing than that. Well, that's all I have to share with you this week. I hope that you will share this with a friend who could use some encouragement. I hope that you have a great week and that you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 